First Timothy chapter four. There we are. Awesome. Okay. Um, let's pray for the scriptures. Lord, let these words grow faithfulness in our hearts. Let them draw us into the life of Christ that we may participate in his life and be permeated with his glory. Father in heaven, to whom a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day, forgive our impudence and impatience in trusting too much in the unworthy and unreliable wisdom of this world. And help us to wait by your trustworthy words that they may help us to be ready at the appearing of your Son, our Savior, Redeemer, Deliverer, and King. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, this is Advent, and we are waiting on God. That's what Advent is about. Boy, how different than what's going on in culture right now. Now, not to say you aren't Christmas shopping, because we all have to do that, but we get to also have a season of waiting on God instead of just... We got so much to do and so much to prepare, so much to bake, so many things to buy for and so many places to go. At least in church, we have this moment of, we wait, we wait for you, right? Great song to just sing tonight. Um, so Paul, uh, we're looking at words to wait by because Paul tells his young pastors, Timothy and Titus, five times. He tells them, the saying is trustworthy. And then the Greek, it's three words, pistos, hos, lagos. Faithful is the word, literally. And of course, logos also is used to refer to Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And of course, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Faithful is the word. These are words that we need. He's the word that dwelt among us. So in a world where we have left, um, where we have lost, where words have lost much of their weight and meaning, And we can't really trust people's words. We need trustworthy words more than ever. And we need to wait by these words. These specific words that Paul gives us are very good words for us to wait by because they're trustworthy. All the scripture is trustworthy. But when Paul, therefore, then says these are trustworthy words, he's like, these are, in a sense, proverbs to live by. Keep these in your pocket while you're waiting for the heaven bus, if you will. (laughs) Because these will keep us from impatience. These will keep us from doing things or seeking out advice or ways or methods or practices that we should not do. Because we're not just in a waiting room playing video games or watching football while we wait for Christ. We are in the battlefield honing our weapons for the victory of the kingdom of God. Not literal weapons, please don't go do something like that. Um, We need these words more now than ever. Now, words can be very untrustworthy. Because language is living and dynamic and words change. For example, this is one we all know, the word gay changed over the years. It used to mean happy. Now it means something completely different. Um, here, so what I did last week, I forgot to share all this, but last week I dug up some words to see like the, the way words have changed. And um, these are slang words that are very common today on social media. And as my uh, friend uh, told me that slang is actually itself a slang word, it's, it actually means short language, but it's shortened to slang. And that's what slang is, is it's when you take the meaning or you take words and you shorten them or you take the meaning and kind of condense it. And now it's like super usable in every kind of way. Here's what I found out. Things that you may have never heard of, I only heard of like three of these before. And now I'm starting to actually notice it from my students in the classroom. Like, oh, that's what they're saying. <laughs> 
here, here's dead. Dead actually is what uh, Sandy just did. It's to laugh out loud. So if you say something makes me dead, it actually makes you laugh really hard. That's what dead means. That's so funny, I'm dead. You guys found it funny, huh? Main character. Yes, main character of a story, but actually it's now being used, too, in context of your life. Look who just got an awesome haircut. Now who's the main character of their life? Like, that's what it means, is when you take possession or control or you're awesome in your life, you are now the main character. Um, GOAT, G-O-A-T, it's an acronym for greatest... What? Greatest of all time. Yeah, so... Michael Jordan is the goat of basketball. You don't say greatest of all time. It's just he's the goat. And we know what that means. It's a good thing, apparently. Uh, tea. Tea is not just what you drink anymore. It's what you spill. It's news. It's gossip. So someone can say, did you hear about Billy? Like, spill the tea, man. Or give me some tea. That's what tea means. Woke. You guys know this one because it's pretty much everywhere. Uh, to be attentive to important issues. It doesn't just mean to hear your alarm clock and get out of bed. It means to be attentive to important issues like injustice or racism. Uh, how about beat? Beat is to apply makeup to yourself. I'm going to go beat my face. Or she is beat. That means she's got good makeup on. Sometimes it also applies to too much makeup. It just refers to makeup. Uh, and this one, I had never heard this in my life. Chuggy. It means uncool, out of date, or an old trend. So... Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, for Christians, DC Talk is chuggy. <laughs> we all remember DC Talk, but they're just so like out of date now. So, anyways, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to DC Talk, but I thought of it because William has a book by them on his chair. Um, okay, but here's my question: If if slang, that, that's not to say this is wrong or bad. Like language does this, right? Words mean the, the what you use them for. But to contrast that. The word of Christ is living and active, but not because it changes its meaning on us. It's living and active because it works in us, and it gives us what we need as we wait for Christ. But my question is, have we made slang of Christianity? Meaning, have we shortened the words of Christ, or have we shortened ourselves from what he actually has saved us for? Tonight we look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 8 is our next, the saying is trustworthy one. 4 verse 8 says this, For bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You'll notice verse 9 is where we see the trustworthy saying. Um, What does it refer to? Is it verse 8 or is it verse 10? When you read this paragraph over and over, you get the sense that Paul's saying, he's referring to the words he just said. Godliness, training for godliness is valuable in every way. That's the trustworthy saying that he's referring to. Now, last week, we looked at 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. And this is much clearer because it just says it right away. 1 Timothy 1, 15 was, This saying is trustworthy and deserving. By the way, remember that's uh, pistos hos lagas. Pistos hos lagas. 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds, of whom I am the foremost. So tonight, godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That is our trustworthy saying. But I fear that we have, in a way, made slang of the word godliness. We've basically shortened its value. We consider godliness as good for those that are really serious about the life to come. Any godliness we have now might kind of cash in in heaven, but we don't see godliness as something that's valuable for this present life. See, Paul says it's valuable for the present life and the life to come, but we have made slang of godliness by kind of projecting it just as something that benefits the future. We'll put up with godliness now. We'll strive for it because we should, or we'll suffer along in our progress toward godliness so that in the life to come, we will have benefit. That is not what this trustworthy saying tells us. He says, for godliness is of value in every way, not just in your Christian life, but also when you are parenting kids, when you are struggling with depression, when you are watching the news and are getting agitated, when you are grandfathering, babysitting, when you are going to work, when you're stuck in traffic, when you are at your third church service of the week, whatever it is, wherever you are, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. <laughs> I think that we have, in ways, shortened the meaning and the usage of godliness. Because Paul says this is what we ought to be striving for. Let's read the whole paragraph so we can get it in its context. This is 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, is where the paragraph starts. And by the way, um, we know it's a new paragraph because he says, if you. It's the first time he's addressing Timothy directly since chapter 1, verse... I don't remember where, but somewhere early in chapter 1. Or sorry, toward the end of chapter 1, actually. So he went on to, to, to tell Timothy about how to structure a church service, how to do prayers in church. He, he talks about, pray for all people when you gather. Let the men not be raising their hands in anger, but in prayer. Lifting your hands in prayer, praying for all people because God wants to save everyone. He talks about how teaching should be done and the role of different people in the church. In chapter 3, he talks about overseers and deacons and, and how there should be oversight and rulership. And then he um, comes to the mystery of godliness at the end of chapter 3. You know this because we were reciting this um, every week um, up before uh, Advent. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He's dealing with false teachers, and there's a, some, there's just a compact little creed of Christian belief, which is meant to say everything that does not fall into that uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 is heresy. 
Because this is the Christ we're proclaiming, Timothy. And so chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. There's false teachings going on. Um, So then in verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6, he now readdresses Timothy. If you put these things, this structure, this worship, and this doctrine, if you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's what you need to do. Keep them on the straight way. You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained, or so much better, many other translations say being nourished. Being nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, or literally wives' tales. (laughs) Rather, Train yourself for godliness. Now, some say exercise, not good. Train is so much better. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So why should we train for godliness? Verse 10. For to this end, godliness, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe or probably can read namely of those who believe. Okay. After deciding to follow Christ... It seems that we tend to follow him a few steps behind, observing his life, his goodness, and then trying to imitate what he does in our context. And we ask the question, what would Jesus do? But the gospel calls us to more than merely imitating Jesus. The gospel is so much bigger. Godliness is so much bigger than just look like Jesus. So Jesus is kind. I'm going to be kind. Jesus is inclusive. I'm going to be inclusive. Jesus is compassionate. I'm going to be compassionate. We often think that godliness is modeling our steps after the steps of Jesus, which implies you are following some steps behind so you know where he's going. You can see how to behave But the gospel is not calling us just to imitation. It's calling us to transformation in Christ. This is different. I'm not just doing what he does. I'm becoming what he is. We are called into participation, communion, and permeation with his very life participation. Here's his life. I want you to come and live this with me, Brand. Communion, becoming one together. Permeation, he is in me and I am him. This is what we're being called to. This is the transformation. This is, this is godliness. God created us for this union. 
when he made Adam and Eve in the beginning, it was so that they can participate with his rule over creation, have communion with him in the Garden of Eden, and have permeation, his, his glory in them and them in his glory, which is why they didn't realize they were naked until the glory had departed. The permeation, the union was severed. We were created for this union. Therefore, you and I will never find rest until we are reunited with Christ in this way. This is the gospel. It calls us to more than imitation. We're not just trying to be godly. Godliness is when God himself is coming in us and we are in him and we are becoming godly. So this is why Paul tells Timothy at the end of verse 7, Train yourself for godliness. This is what we are after. Train yourself. The word is gymnazo, where we get gymnasium. And that is actually the same reference. We, we haven't changed. Uh, that's one where the word is as dead as dead because it hasn't changed, I guess. Uh, the gymnasium for them is the gymnasium for us where you go to this place and you get buff and you get in shape and you train yourself for whatever you're doing. Some of it's you're training yourself for vanity. Some of it's you're actually training yourself to do something in life. Um, That's what he's saying. He's using this imagery. Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Now, godliness doesn't just happen. Actually, let me back up. Before I say that, uh, the reason I had said earlier when we read this that the New King James uses exercise, which I'm not a fan of. We're not exercising ourselves for godliness. Bodily exercise profits little, but we'd rather exercise for godliness. Um, because here's the reason. It was probably a great translation when it came out, but today exercise is more of a um, self-esteem, self-improvement project. We got to get our exercise in. Uh, but training is a very specific term. You don't just say, I got to do my training today. Like Most people aren't saying that. Athletes say that. Olympians say, I've got to train. In other words, we don't say, I'm going to climb Mount Everest, so I got to exercise. I'm going to climb Mount Everest, so I need to train. You understand the difference? And I'm pointing this out not to bash translation. I I bash them when they need to be bashed, and I'm not actually bashing. Um, I just think that exercise is a little too general for us, and train brings it and hones it. Because what godliness is is not a self-improvement project. It's not I want to up my self-esteem or I want to look holy before other people. That's what exercise does. Godliness is training. It's trying to get us to get somewhere, become something. So that when Christ returns, we're we're on the podium receiving a medal, if you will. That's, that's training. Um, now, just like with the body, um, we aren't conditioned or in shape by accident. Actually, if we make zero effort, what we tend to do is get out of shape, don't we? I know, round is a shape. I understand that. Laying down is a... But, you know, we're not... Yeah, sorry. I always, I just always laugh. Someone always tells me, round is a shape. I'm in shape. Um, These things don't just happen, right? If we just let things go, we tend to not be in shape. We tend to not be conditioned. Same thing with godliness. We cannot think that, well, I received Christ and that I'm good. If if you're just going to kind of live your life, you do you, and you kind of have Christ in the passenger seat, 
you are going to not be very godly. Yeah, you might sin a little less or you might be forgiven of your past sins, but you aren't going to be growing up into this union with God and Christ. Godliness is not going to ooze and emanate from our being. That takes training. Godliness is participating in and being permeated with the life of Christ. And that requires training. Why? (laughs) Because I'm a sinner. I am, I am in shape spiritually and I am in condition. The problem is I'm conditioned towards sin. I have a will that is bent toward disobedience, that is bent toward selfishness, that is bent toward pride, that is bent toward how can everything and everyone serve me? I have bad, evil habits, not just finger-biting habits, but I have habits that come from the demons. This is why we need training in godliness, because we have to break these habits and have Christ and his ways take over for us. Because sin is here in my life, preventing this union with Christ. Yes, it's forgiven, but it's also robbing. It's taking from me godliness. Now, I know the objection immediately be, but you said last week that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And you gave us great comfort that sinners are in a great position to receive God's goodness. Yeah. But here's what we miss is I don't need to make myself sin to receive his grace. If I just look inside, there's already plenty there to receive plenty of grace and mercy. And additionally, we're not talking about works righteousness. Okay, training for godliness is not, well, I'm going to start doing these good deeds so that I accumulate for myself this grand position with God. I'm one of his favorites, and now I can prophesy over people because I have earned it. No, no, no. This is not how Christianity works. It's not how God works. God is not very impressed. In fact, that's not what he's asking for. He's not asking for you to impress your neighbor or to impress your pastor or to impress him. He's asking us to be united with him, to be one with him. So no, we're not talking about earning a place with God. We're not talking about works to save ourselves. And there's three reasons for this. Training for righteousness is not earning your salvation or earning a place with God. Because one, salvation is not about going to heaven instead of hell. Oh yes, that's true. You're saved, you are going to heaven and not hell. But that is not the full salvation story. Salvation is rather about our healing and our restoration so that we can be reunited with the God whom sin has severed us from, so that we can once again stand before his presence like Adam and Eve did. This is salvation. It includes heaven because that's God's realm. And the saved sinner wants God more than he wants out of hell. Hell. Heaven just kind of happens to be the package because that's where God is. So no, we're not like working our way out of hell. (laughs) We don't train to work off our old debt of sin. We train to strengthen ourselves against future sin. That's the second reason that this isn't working for our salvation. Because I don't work, I'm not working off my past debt. Christ in his grace and through the cross has forgiven that. 
The reason I am working and training for godliness is so that I can strengthen the soul to resist and overcome and triumph the pitfalls and the sins that are put before me. That's why I'm training. It's the same way that an athlete never trains and says, well, I'm training because I lost. I'm going to go fix that loss and make it into a victory by training. You can't do that. The game's over. The contest has been proven. You're training for the next competition. You're training so that in the next event, you won't stumble on the last two yards like you did in the last time. You're training so that you can throw a strike with the bases loaded and full count like you couldn't do last time. Christ has forgiven our sins in the past, but he's giving us grace to train in godliness to conquer the sins of the future. And third, this is not working for our salvation because training is about cooperating with God's grace. It's not about earning it. God's grace, his energy, his power in our lives through the Holy Spirit is with us. The question is, am I going to cooperate with that energy, that power, the Holy Spirit with grace? I can't sit here passively and say, yes, I cooperate when he's saying pray. <laughs> You've got to pray. <laughs> That's how you cooperate is when you do what God is telling you to do. So we come alongside and once his grace is here, but we come alongside and now it can carry us. It can work in us. This is, by the way, that troubling verse, Philippians 2 verse 12 means. This is what it means. Here's what it is. Philippians 2 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Here's the troubling part. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whoa, everyone raises the flag. Paul's telling us to work for our salvation. No, he's not. Rehear this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is not saying work off the debt of your sin. He is saying work on your salvation from sin. The debt's paid for. Now he's saying you're saved. You are saved. What I'm telling you to do is work out that salvation. The merits and the blessings and the victories that come from your now being rescued from sin, work that out. Stop sinning. That's what he's saying. Because God is working in us. And by the way, that word workout kind of sounds like pumping iron. I'm going to go work out. Sounds like training. Um, so I had to look it up. I had to look up the Greek word and it's, it doesn't matter to you probably, but it's katergazomai, which sounds like you're clotting a blood vessel or something. But, um, this, it means actually to render one fit for something. It's to be in shape for something. Work out your salvation. Be in shape for your salvation, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So I want you to imagine like this. We are to work out what God is working in us. What he is working in us, we are to work out. That's cooperating with his work, his energy, his grace. Um, So um, the greatest baseball player right now in our day and age is widely considered Mike Trout, who plays in our own hometown Angels. Um, now, I use baseball analogies for this because that's what I was. Um, if I wanted to hit like Mike Trout, who consistently hits the ball over 100 miles an hour, 
and is just one of the best hitters I've ever seen in my lifetime. Um, if I wanted to be like him, I could watch hours of video. I could have my swing practiced thousands of times. I could even have Mike Trout himself in the batting cage with me, working and tinkering on my stance and my swing and where I'm going wrong and how to approach a pitch. But I will, despite all that, never, ever be able to hit like Mike Trout. In fact, most baseball players who are trying to can't. But what if Mike Trout himself was somehow able to come inside me and I allowed him to work out through me? What if he was able to guide my hands to the ball and show my legs how to pivot and how to bring the bat inside at a quicker speed? What if I was to let him do that in me? My new task would be to work out the trout working in me. And this is what we are to do. We're to work out the work that God is doing in us. This is why training for godliness has nothing to do with trying to earn merit with God, earn a place or a privilege, or earn our salvation. This is simply what godliness in the gospel calls us to become. Because we have shortened and cheapened what it means to look like Christ, to just physical morality, when he's trying to, from the inside out, create a new creature and build the virtues of Christ himself in us. Okay, so we're training for godliness. Let's train. You ready? You're going to get up and stretch? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but maybe. Paul mentions here in verse 8, bodily training. For bodily training is of some value. Now, it's believed by, it's kind of split down the half, the commentators who, um, some commentators say, while bodily training is of some value, is part of the trustworthy saying. Others say, no, it's just the part where it says godliness is of value in every way because it promises in the life to come in this life that that's the saying. Really, we're just kind of flipping a coin and saying, is it a quarter or not? Well, it's a quarter no matter what side it lands on, right? I mean, this is a trustworthy saying. that We have to train for godliness because it's valuable. Um, probably, though, the um, bodily training part he's throwing in. Just like last saying, he threw in the part, I am the chief of sinners. He's probably throwing in the bodily training part because it's an illustration to godly training. So if bodily training is a temporal exercise and spiritual training is an eternal exercise, Paul's going to say, basically, how much harder is it to train spiritually then? Because you're working on something that's eternal. So if it takes effort and if it's hard and we must apply ourselves to train physically, how much more... Will we to train in godliness? Therefore, training physically, training bodily becomes a template, a starting point as an example of what it takes to train in godliness. That's, that's why I believe he mentions this. In the past, I'd always heard them just kind of emphasize that part. Oh, you're working on your abs again. Shame, bodily training profits little, but godliness. Like, that wasn't what Paul's saying. He's not putting anywhere in here. He's not putting exercise, physical exercise down at all. 
He's just mentioning it as like, well, it profits some. But see, godliness is the more difficult training. I mean, have you ever tried to overcome? Um, Maybe you've been hesitant to call it a sin, but like maybe a spiritually bad habit. (laughs) It's not easy. And the more you try, you discover the strength of it and its resistance against you. For example, you don't know how strong something is until you resist it. It might be in your life and you're like, no big deal, I'll get over it when I want to. I just don't want to yet. No, no, no. Try. You will find out the strength of vices. It's like this. When you're riding in a car, you know, driving totally the speed limit at 75 or 80 on your way to Arizona, um, you don't understand how fast that is when you're in the car because you're going with the speed. Conversely, if you were to stand on the 10 freeway and let an 80-mile-an-hour car hit you, you would know very well how much force is in that car because you're resisting it. We don't know the strength of vices because we tend to go with them. But as soon as you say, I'm training for godliness, oof, you discover how hard this is. You've, re- you've realized the strength and power and force it has over you. Okay, so we're going to train. So there's six requirements for training um, that I can think of. I accumulated these in my thinking from a couple friends who talk a lot about training <laughs> and from my own experience somewhat. Um, I did play baseball, so some of these illustrations will refer to baseball, Okay. But it applies to so many things and spiritually. So what do we need? What do we need to train in godliness? Well, we're going to talk about what we need physically and then look at how that applies to our training spiritually. First, what you need, and there's going to be six of them. We need all six of these, but I think the last three are the utmost important. But all of these are important. First, training requires community. Training requires community. It is really hard to train alone. It takes a lot of determination. In fact, I know someone who has done, I've no, actually, I've heard this from two different people who recently did a Spartan or some other like big old um, physical event. And the way they say that others in the competition will actually help you keep going when you want to quit. Because they're all in this together as a community. We all want to accomplish this and you can't do it by yourself. And when you want to lag behind, they won't let you. And this is what the church is is we're training for godliness, but we're not doing this alone. We're in this together, and we encourage one another. And here's the other thing. I might have a very low bar, <laughs> and I might be very complacent. I'm just a decent chap, you know? I've, I'm kind of, that's where I'm, I'm fine. I'm just a decent chap. I'm not a jerk. I don't cuss. I'm good. Um, but when you are training with each other in godliness, all of a sudden your bar looks really low. Like, just for example, when we studied St. Macarius the other week, all of us realized our bar is very low. (laughs) And if you can imagine him being in our church, we would find him either incredibly annoying because I am not going to be like you, or very encouraging because you're like, wow, help me train harder. Either way, training needs community. Second, training requires coaching because we cannot always see our flaws. It disappointed me to no end as a kid when I was taken to my first couple baseball games and realized that Major League Baseball players also have um, base running coaches, first base and third base coaches, 
to help the runners know when to go and when to stop, just like I did in Little League. I was so disappointed because I thought they're professionals. They're the best. They don't need coaches. We need coaches because we're learning. And that disappointed me until I you know, grew up and began to learn. It doesn't matter how smart you are or fast you are. You can't see the play behind your back. The coach is there to tell you what's happening in the field so you can just focus on running. We need coaches who can see what we cannot see. Um, also, for example... Uh, I was a pitcher, and in in practicing pitching, um, you have different pitches that you need. Because if you just throw a fastball all the time, same speed, any Joe hitter can just eat, you just time it and just get ready and launch on you, right? The art of pitching is to get a hitter off balance, which means they don't know what speed is coming or what location. You keep them guessing. You are one step ahead of them all the time. That's how you pitch. Well, in part of this training, you learn fastball, of course, is your number one, like control pitch. Uh, then curveball is one that I really mastered in high school. And um, my coach worked a lot with me on the curveball. But here's the thing. Um, you throw fastballs one way, and then you throw curveballs another way. You snap down on them. And if you don't do it the right way, the hitter can tell right away, oh, he changed his arm motion. I know not to swing at this. So it's all about deception. I can't see that. I cannot see. No matter how hard I work on it, I don't know if my arm looks the same from pitch to pitch. My coach can. And he can tell me, no, no, you're short-arming the curveball again. you got to throw it like a fastball. Coaching helps us with our blind spots, which are typically our flaws. We don't want to see them or we can't see them. We need spiritual coaches to say, look, you don't know this about you, but like we need to work on this. Or how about this? Like, when's the last time you had somebody say, hey, I want you to look at like my devotional life and tell me like where I can improve this? When's I, I, to be honest, I never did that till the last year I heard that that's actually a thing. You can actually do that. <laughs> you can have a spiritual coach. Um, when's the last time you had someone do that? And it doesn't have to be a guru. Not all coaches were the best at what they did. It's simply an outsider that can see what you are doing right and wrong. We need, training requires a coach. Um, third, training requires competition. It requires competition. Because as Christians, we train for victory. We don't train for mere self-improvement. That'll come, and that's great. But we train for victory, which means we're training with an end in mind. We have something specific as we train for godliness. It's not, I'm training for godliness so that people can admire me. I'm training for godliness so that one day, Pastor Brandon, when he teaches on a saint again, he will teach on me. Or he will use me as an example of all the great things I do. Um, No. We're training for competition. In other words, the athlete, when I'm practicing pitching, um, I'm practicing to actually throw the ball at a live batter. Like, what is the point if I am throwing, 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 just to close up the bullpen session and have my coach pleased in me? Like, that's vanity. I'm practicing so that I can, in the day of competition, prove my strength and my victory. And as Christians, we're training for godliness so that when the devil tests us, so that when Job, for example, who clearly trained for godliness, was tested, you can prevail and overcome the challenges. So that when that thing I've stumbled on, I've been working on, comes up, 
victory this time. When that, what, that person whom you once referred to as that idiot comes into your life, you can see them as a not idiot, maybe for the first time. Training requires competition. It's for a reason. Four, training requires discipline. Discipline. Um, it means you can't just wait until you feel like it. Anyone who's tried running or exercising or anything like that knows that there are just so many times you don't feel like it. If you've ever tried to read the Bible through in a year, there's so many mornings you're like, I don't feel like it. Or pray on a consistent basis. You're like, it was, it was, it had some steam for a while, but I kind of lost the mojo. I'm just going to sit it out for a while. Maybe I'll get back to it. Like, nope, you can't go on your feelings. The athlete can't go on their feelings. The person training in godliness can't go on their feelings. We have to have discipline, which means we set, um, we know what we need. We set times for us to do what we need to do, and we show up. So we determine times to pray. We determine times to read the scriptures. We determine times to worship together corporately. That's kind of easy because it happens every night at Sunday at 5 o'clock. I mean, it's every week, Sunday at 5 o'clock. Um, we determine, but some people don't, right? They just, oh, I don't feel like it tonight. Well, I mean, there's a lot of times when I don't feel like being here myself. Not that I have no joy in it. I do, but sometimes I just physically don't feel it. And I'm like, if I'm not the pastor, I don't know if I would be here tonight. But I am the pastor, so I have to be here. And it's for my good, to be honest, because otherwise I could be, frankly, quite lazy. You need to have the same discipline. Um, We need um, discipline um, also for, like, fasting. Because here's the thing. I I have this view of, like, I just got to fast when I feel like it. Because that's, like, how you're God-led. Yes, sometimes. But then I had to realize, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plan fasts because I never, I learned I never feel like it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Even on the days I'm supposed to fast, I don't feel like it. But I go through with it. And by the way, as you go through with things with discipline, it doesn't mean you're always in drudgery doing what you have to do because I have to do it. There comes a point when the affections follow the actions that, you know, the first few times I ever went running, I dreaded it. I remember, like, the baseball coach made us run a whole lap around the field. A whole lap! This is baseball! It's not running! And then the other coach was even crazier, who actually treated us like a cross-country team and blah, 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 blah. There were times you hated that. But then when you get in the rhythm of it, you're like, oh, I can do this. And actually, I'm finding joy in this. And that can actually happen. So with our spiritual lives... We determine that we're going to do these things, and the affections will follow the actions. If we open our hearts to Christ, he will meet us there. Five, training requires repetition. Because repetition provides conditioning, provides strengthening, it provides muscle memory. So, um, in baseball, my coach has said, take a minimum of 100 swings a day with your bat. Why? Well, I began to realize after a month of 100 swings a day, I could swing faster because my hands were stronger. Um, I also realized um, that my swing felt more comfortable. All the awkward ways they told me to swing that didn't feel right because you just want to go up there and kind of hack and dip your shoulder and like reach, swing for the skies. I want to hit home runs. I got to hit it in the air. That's actually a terrible way to swing. Um, but by them teaching me, no, no, the bat's got to go down through the zone. Like, what? Why? And, but by practice, 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 soon what felt unnatural felt natural. 
And it became muscle memory, which is super important because when you're facing a fast pitcher, how do you catch up to a pitch that you have to read within a split second? Muscle memory is the only way. You cannot think about your swing. You react to the pitch. That's what good hitters do. That's what good athletes do. That's what good Christians do. We don't find ourselves in a situation to say, what would Christ do? Too late. We react to situations because we have so-called muscle memory. When muscle memory becomes spiritual, it's called a virtue. It's what you are, and it comes on display. Repetition. Um, So that means, spiritually, we need repetition. Um, This doesn't mean everything we do has to be repetitive, but there's nothing wrong with with praying prayers that we find effective or we find meaningful to pray them with repetition. There's nothing wrong with singing a worship song that you find powerful, that you find really lifts up Christ in your heart over and over. There's nothing wrong with reading the Bible yet again. And what if you wanted to read the book of Ephesians from front to end every day this year? But, but Pastor Brandon, all these things are vain repetition. Jesus said, don't pray with vain repetition. Repetition's only vain if it has no purpose. But if repetition has a purpose, it is not in vain. That's the beauty of repetition is that it can create um, reactions in us and it can become part of us. There are a few prayers that I have prayed repetitively for about a year now. And I know them by heart. And that's so cool because I find them sometimes just like, boop, coming out. Uncalled for. I wasn't in prayer, but like, there's the prayer. It's become part of me. Um, sometimes we think that repetition in Christianity is like, no, you can't do that. Um, that makes you less godly. But I've never known anyone who has sung the national anthem repetitively to be called anti-patriotic. Actually, we tend to admire people that continue to do those patriotic things. They're super patriotic. And so there's nothing wrong with repetition if it's done with purpose. And this is one of the primary ways that we build godliness in us. And then sixth, training requires dieting. You have to eat well. You can't eat ice cream every night and expect to beat your personal running record. Um, In the Christian life, we call this fasting. And it doesn't mean, it means, fasting means different things to different people. It doesn't mean we just stop eating all the time. It just means that there are periods of time when we are permitting ourselves to feast, and there are periods of time when we permit ourselves to not indulge our appetites. And this spiritual diet sharpens our awareness of God's work in our lives. That's been my experience anyways. And dieting too, by the way, it's not just fasting. It's also right here in verse 6. Um, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained or being nourished or literally also being fed in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. What Paul is saying there is that you in your training for godliness are sustained by what you are consuming. And if you're consuming the words of the faith and the good doctrine, you are fueling your soul for training in godliness. That's 
how we diet. So brothers and sisters, you will find the value of godliness not only in the next life, but in this life if we are willing to, with Christ, train in godliness. We don't do this on our own. We're coming alongside the power that Christ is giving us in the Holy Spirit so that we can be permeated one like we were created to be in the life of Christ. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.